The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Hi, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for joining us, Steve, myself and Frank. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Frank's a... I am too, but Frank is definitely a huge fan of your work. Oh, great. Great. So, yeah, excited to to chat to you about things. Um, you want to just jump into it? Because I know you've got some uh, some soccer to get to at, at 6 p.m., right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, Frank, do you want to do you want to take this away? Because I know that you've been itching sure. to ask Steve some questions. So now here is your opportunity. Right. Yeah. And I'm really excited to uh, to speak with you, Steve, because uh, I read The Fall back, I think, when it first came out, 2005, oh, wow. I believe. And it yeah, quickly right. became like one of my top 10 books. And I've reread it a few times. It's all dog-eared and underlined and everything else. Oh, wow. So, so I, I found that it it had just so much explanatory power for me to explain so many of the features of the modern world. And that's that's been really useful so what i I thought we could do is maybe just a quick review of the thesis on that book and Mm. make sure make sure i've got my facts right here (laughs) um so we start out the very first sentence in the book for the last six thousand years human beings have been suffering from a kind of collective psychosis for almost all of recorded human history things have been at least to some degree, insane. And wow, that, that's quite a way to tee it up. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's a, a very good summary. Yeah. Funny enough, I haven't looked at the fall for, for, for a few for a few years, but I picked it out this morning from my bookcase and started to kind of review it again. So maybe I, I kind of subconsciously sense that you're going to talk about it. But um, yeah, that, that's an excellent summary. The fall is about a, a, a great change in human consciousness, which I call sometimes called the ego explosion, and it's a way of it's a way of explaining why so much chaos entered into human history. You know, why human beings started to kill each other en masse in, in groups, why um, why men started to oppress women, why hierarchical societies developed, why monotheistic religions developed. All of these things occurred pretty much at the same time in the same parts of the world um, amongst the same groups. So they were they were obviously connected to some major change which people in these groups underwent. And as you say, it, it started off with groups in the Middle East and or North Africa as well, um, which which is you know what we mean by the term Sahara. And these people these groups, you know, they, they were the original Indo-Europeans. The original Indo-Europeans were part of that group, part of these groups. And they seem to develop a new sense of individuality, a new intense awareness of themselves as, as individual beings. And they also developed a kind of a, a, an acute, a very acute intellect and a new kind of practical intelligence Mm-hmm. which was responsible for a lot of the new innovations and inventions that came about around that time. So, so coupled with uh, uh, parts of Asia and the Middle East, 
and became very, very dominant. Right. So I think in the popular understanding of human history, a lot of people, especially here in the States, the, the athletic paleo movement, everybody points to the dawn of agriculture 10,000 years ago as being the pivotal moment when things went wrong. But your explanation seems a little bit more nuanced and, and interesting. That's right. I mean, um, you know, farming was a big factor. It did bring about significant changes in, in human history. But the real factors were psychological. I think farming itself was a product of a, a new kind of psychology. Right. You know, um, and also, the first human beings who, who switched to a settled lifestyle, they weren't really farmers. They were more like horticulturalists. Mm-hmm. And that was that began maybe 10,000 years ago in certain parts of the world. They they initially followed similar patterns to the to the hunter gatherer people. So they they were also quite egalitarian, and they were also kind of non theistic. Um, so so there wasn't really a, there was a there was a slight change in the way they lived. They became more settled, but they didn't really change fundamentally in terms of their societies. Um, so but the real change began um, a few thousand years later. Uh, with what I call the ego explosion. And when the ego explosion occurred, that's when farming began. Farming began uh, as a kind of a much more heavier, a much more kind of invasive way of living with very hierarchical societies. Populations grew larger. And that was really the first time uh, with the ego explosion. It was the first time that human beings began to cover each other's territory. You know, early human beings were not really territorial. But but once you know people began to settle in into large towns, and they they became very materialistic. They developed a sense of ownership, and that's when they began to to make war with each other to try to you know uh, take away each other's possessions, take away mm-hmm. each other's territory. So there was a new need for ownership which hadn't really been there before. So my, my thesis is that the urge, the need for ownership, is a result of the individuated ego. Because if you feel a sense of separateness, then there's something lacking. You know, you need to you need to add something to yourself. So materialism is about trying to add things to yourself, to own things. It's the same with power. You know, if, if you have a strong urge to gain power, you're trying to add something to yourself to make up for a sense of separateness. Right. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with this book called The Parable of the Tribes. This fellow's no. name is uh, Andrew Bard Schmuckler. <laughs> and I, I can't remember the date on it. It's a, roughly the year 2000. But it dovetails perfectly with what you're talking about because he sets up the book and he says, imagine a region, for example, the Middle East, where all the tribes lived in peace except for one. What would happen if one tribe started attacking some others? And the way he explains it is that power defensiveness, militarization, all of these things operate like a ratchet because once you're attacked, then you have to adopt some of the attitudes and philosophies of your attacker and you become Mm -hmm. more militant and more defensive. And so power spreads through the entire system. And all it takes is one act or one tribe to Mm. start acting aggressively. And then you get so many of these consequences. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've not heard of that book, but I'll definitely check it out. It reminds me a little bit of um, in Europe. Um, you know, Europe was quite close to 
to the original epicenter of the ego explosion. So it was taken over quite quickly, you know, mm-hmm. by by two certainly by 2000 BC, most of Europe had been taken over by these you know new groups with this uh, new intensified sense of ego, warlike, hierarchical, patriarchal groups with mono- with polytheistic religions. But on the island of Crete, because it was so isolated, it was about 100 miles away from the mainland, and a, a kind of old, an old European uh, culture survived for longer, for another few centuries. Mm-hmm. So, so if you go, if you go to nowadays, you can go to Crete, and you can go to the museum uh, Her- Heraklion. You can see lots of, you know, lots of mementos, relics from the old European sort of egalitarian culture, and it's quite fascinating because you are glimpsing the old world, a kind of pre. A pre-fall world, but, but because you know, Greece eventually, uh, I think it was about well, around 15, 1500 BC, uh, invaders from mainland Greece managed to dis- discover discover Greece, and then you see signs of increasing um, defensive walls and increasing uh, warlikeness in images right. and, in, and in archaeological findings. So you can see how the Crete and the original Cretan people change to try to defend themselves against the invaders. And then, of course, quite quickly, the original culture was completely taken over by a Masonian Greek, mainland Greek culture. And, you know, so the, the old European culture gradually disappeared entirely. Yeah, yeah. Well, another thought I had when I was reading your book, I follow people in the world of primatology, and there's often this comparison of chimpanzees and bonobos. And, you know, in the popular imagination that the bonobos are considered to be the hippies of the of the primate world and the chimpanzees are more warlike and more aggressive. And then the conversation always turns to humans. It's, are we more like chimps or are we more like bonobos? And from reading your book, I, I come away with this conclusion. It's like our fundamental nature is more like bonobos. We're more peace-loving. Mm and more egalitarian and then something happened and does that track with what you're saying do you see us as being more bonobo like it until this ego explosion definitely certainly although i i do think this is another thing i mentioned in the fall i do think that chimpanzee violence or aggression has been exaggerated i think mm-hmm. there's no doubt that chimpanzees are more aggressive than bonobos but there are there have been some studies of chimpanzees in a completely natural, undisturbed environment, and they tend to be more peaceful. Mm. It, it, the studies which have which have found high levels of aggression in chimps tend to be in habitats that have been dis- not destroyed but disrupted right. by human intervention, where where their natural feeding patterns have been disrupted. So you're not really getting a, a picture of chimpanzees in their natural environment. But mm. when you do have that, the you know levels of aggression tend to be much lower. But at the same time. I, I agree. Bonobos are certainly a lot more peaceful and egalitarian, probably than any other ape on our planet. Right. Right. And I think human beings, we, we have inherited that. I think even now, even though we live in a, a fallen world, uh, we do, you know, we, we do see high levels of altruism in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um we do see high levels of generosity, even peacefulness in, in certain situations. Although obviously we have a, a strong tendency to to violence and or social violence and direct, direct violence too. Right. 
But that's the thing, right, eh, Frank and, and, and Steve. I mean, just you saying that, I've also read around this topic of, you know, chimpanzees being more violent. But you, as you rightfully note, many of those examples are of chimps, which this is interesting. This doesn't get put out in the media, though. This, this always fascinates me, and we can always talk about why that is the case. But those particular groups of chimpanzees have been encroached on. Their environment, mm. their natural environment has been encroached on, and that's what's changing their behavior. Because as yeah. you note, that when they're actually in an environment where it is natural, where there isn't this kind of constant threat of encroachment from the modern world, they don't tend to behave in that way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I saw in Gombe in Tanzania. I went there, that's where Jane Goodall did her work. And when you fly into Gombe, you can see this patch of forest where the chimps live and around it is all farming mm. and it's completely encapsulated. Mm -hmm. I mean, the chimps have absolutely nowhere to go. They have yeah. to stay in Gombe. So their, their behavior is obviously influenced by that. Yeah, I think what happens is that there, there are some anthropologists and scientists have a narrative uh, about human selfishness and human aggression, and they just cherry pick examples which fit to their narrative. Right. Yeah. You know, I think Richard Rangan, um, mm -hmm. he, he does this. Uh, something like Richard Dawkins from an evolutionary mm -hmm. biological perspective, he does the same. Um, but no, yeah, certainly, yeah, it's been exaggerated and. You get somebody like Steven Pinker. I guess you're familiar with, with yeah, his sure. work. He he believes that human beings are naturally well, well were, and are naturally warlike. But there's been this steady, steady decline in war and murder right. throughout human history. But that's not the case. If you look at you know the earliest uh, human societies, simple hunter gatherer groups, they have extremely low levels of violence. Mm -hmm. And what, what what Pinker does, he basically picks cherry picks a few more kind of disrupted cultures, um, you know, mm -hmm. groups which are not particularly representative of early human groups. He picks them as representatives of, of early human history and suggests that their high level of aggression is, you know, the norm, which is not the case at all. There's a lot of evidence showing that warfare erupted quite quickly around 6,000 years ago, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. before then, you know, group conflict was almost unknown. But it also it also fits a narrative, right? So the narrative of materialism, consumerism, about competition, about survival of the fittest, that fits that narrative then. Because then you can say, well, look, you know, our closest, closest cousins, look at how they are. They are not too dissimilar to us, especially around the whole violence aspect and about wanting to compete for you know, alpha maleness and territory and so forth. So that kind of bolsters that narrative so that, the powers of to be can actually apply that and you know in in their favor yeah that, that's right yeah and that, that's why that narrative has become very popular it's sort of taken over and become the standard narrative of, of our culture at least in the mainstream mm -hmm. yeah. uh, because it you know it, it kind of suits the, our economic model you know the right, right. it suits a kind of capitalist individualistic economic model right it kind yeah, of just it justifies that so you know it, it's um but it's—I mean—even Darwin wasn't um, wasn't a neo-Darwinist, you know. He was—he <laughs> yeah. he had a, a more moderate form of Darwinism, which which included cooperation and altruism. Right. But the the cooperative and altruistic aspects were kind of edited out in the neo-Darwinist model. 
Well, what I'd like to do now is um, leave plenty of time for antidotes because we had this ego explosion and all of these consequences to it. And now we find ourselves in this planetary crisis. And what, what are you recommending as antidotes to the ego explosion? How do we dial down on the ego that has been become such a dominant driving force in human culture now? In the fall, I, I discuss what I term the transform movement. And I suggest that there has been a natural process over the past, well, you know, most prevalently and most obviously over the past 300 years, and it's mm -hmm. increased over the past century or so. But there has been a movement to, to transcend the fall, a movement to transcend separateness and return to integration to regain a sense of connection to nature and to other human beings. So, so I think that's happening naturally anyway, to a degree. Maybe it's a survival mechanism because, you know, the ultimate, um, the end result of the fall is disaster. It's, you know, it's catastrophe. It's, it's chaos and, and conflict leading to uh, catastrophe. And we're seeing that narrative play out as well. But at the same time, there is a, a movement to transcend the fall and, and to heal our disconnection from nature. So and I, I think we can definitely contribute to that. I think to a large extent, it's to do with individual development. I mean, I think, I think spirituality is a movement beyond the fall. You know, all, all the great spiritual traditions from Hinduism to Taoism and the mystical traditions in, in Christianity, Judaism or Islam, you can see them as, as a, a movement beyond ego separation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so and that's that's why they developed you know in the midst of the the conflict the, the chaos and discord of the world and the, the violence and cruelty of the ancient world some people discovered that you could transcend um suffering you could transcend psychological suffering and also social suffering through following a path of inner development so i think you know i've always had a, a strong emphasis that every person has a responsibility to contribute to the healing of the world through their own personal spiritual development, through transcending individuality and separation within ourselves. So then what are the practices? What, uh, what do people need to be doing in their daily lives to bring that kind of thing about? Meditation is, is a, you know, a great way of transcending separation and healing and reintegrating into the cosmos. But also uh, simply, you know, connecting with nature, spending time in the natural world. Uh, spending time in, in the natural world is, is a form of meditation because it helps to heal our separation and reintegrates us into the cosmos. And altruism, altruism. I've always thought of altruism as a spiritual practice because when you are altruistic to other people, you connect with them. You, you you also transcend separation. But you don't just connect with another person. You connect with something larger, something transcendent. Mm -hmm. So so I would say, you know, there are lots of paths and practices which help us to transcend separation. Right. What I've found that's been very beneficial for me 
is, you know, just when you were talking also about this idea of ownership and then when ownership really came about, things started to change. Well, there was a time before ownership. I mean, especially if you look at indigenous, um, you know, kind of populations and indigenous people, their understanding and the way that they see the world. And if, you know, I, I originally came from South Africa and if we look at the the, the Khoisan and, and those tribes, they didn't have ownership, right? They, they basically, they had to move because they were hunters and gatherers and they had to move from one place to the next, wherever there would be food. And so if you couldn't carry it, then you didn't want it. You know, you only had a few things that belonged to you, if you want to call it that. And even then it didn't really belong to you because you would share it with the community. And if I look at how they see the world and their spiritual practices, that's also very helpful because that talks to a time before all of this began, right? If we say the time before the fall, they were living and being in the world very differently to the way we are now. So I think we can look back to them for mm. answers that could help us in this moment in time. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, following a lifestyle of voluntary simplicity, mm. that, that emerges naturally as we undergo personal development or spiritual development. But it, it can also be a, a spiritual practice in itself to live a life of simplicity, you know, to, to downshift and to move away from acquisition and accumulation. And, um, yeah, I think... Um, you know, it's probably quite a healthy sign that there seems to be a, an attitude of increasing respect to indigenous groups, because mm -hmm. um, they, they 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 do represent something from human the human race's prehistoric era, and they you know they can show us a you know that I mean despite you know there are very few groups which haven't undergone some degree of disruption through encroachment from modern culture. But um, but I say I think you know most groups still possess something of of the pre-fall qualities mm -hmm. that, that we discussed. You know that lack mm -hmm. of acquisition, a sense of respect to nature, a sense of connection to nature. I think one of the, the most fundamental qualities which um, early human being, early human groups, and which some indig indigenous cultures still possess, is a sense of empathy towards mm -hmm. nature. Yeah. You know, r rather than seeing nature as a, a supply of resources to to use and abuse, indigenous groups generally see nature as, you know, a, a sentient, um, sacred phenomenon. And they treat it with respect because they sense its sacredness. And again, I think, we, you know, as a culture, we're beginning to regain that. And we probably do need to regain it in order to safeguard our survival. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I've noticed, it, there, there's some tricky elements to this because what I've seen happen in the popular press regarding practices like meditation and yoga and some of these other things, it, they're now cast as self-development, which means that we are supposed to practice meditation and all these various things because it makes us more powerful, better humans, better individuals. And that seems completely contrary to the whole thing, right? It's like, you can be a better you if you <laughs> practice these things, but if you become a better you, now you are no longer doing the practice. And it, 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 there's a paradox there that I think we need to resolve. 
off somehow. Definitely, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, those, um, you know, it's like you know, earn more money, meditate half a, half an hour a day, and double your income or increase your efficiency at work. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think what's happening there is that these practices have, have been kind of co-opted, right, by materialistic mainstream materialistic culture, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. It's, it's it always happens. It's what. Um, I can't remember who came up with this term, but somebody came up with this term, spiritual materialism. Yeah. You know, it's, it's when spiritual practices are used for materialistic ends. And they're, and they're probably quite effective in that way. You probably can earn more money if you meditate twice a day. You can, you probably can become more efficient in your job. But that, but that's not the true purpose. But I, I guess that the counter to that is that if somebody does meditate, then they will discover some of the, the the genuine, authentic aspects of it. And maybe they will explore them in more detail. So mo- maybe it's not entirely negative. I mean, some people say that about mindfulness. Mindfulness is so popular now. And um, somebody used the term Mac mindfulness, you know, like fast fast food meditation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but um, I mean, that, that's exactly true, though, Steve, because my, you know, my PhD research was in mindfulness. So I got to see yeah. all of these things, right? And a lot of this, when what, what Frank's also talking mm-hmm. about, kind of reminds me of this notion of human exceptionalism, as humans being the pinnacle of everything on this planet, and that we are the we're the best, right? Everything else is subservient yeah. to us. And coming back, not to keep hitting on the whole idea of indigenous ways of being, but like you said, it's exactly that is that reverence for nature and recognizing us as part of nature, not better than. And that's why oftentimes in indigenous cultures, when they refer to animals, they talk about those animals as their brothers, their sisters, and their cousins. And Mm -hmm. that's really powerful too. And even in the, you know, if we talk about the Western world, we do have a tradition of that. If we look back and we look at paganism, for example, which is on the rise, actually, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be, I guess, for many of us as Europeans would have been our history. And my family originally came from Scotland. And so at some point they were probably pagans. And if you Mm. look at what pagans kind of viewed the world as, it wasn't too different to what we've been describing as the indigenous ways of, of being and knowing. And so there's something to be said for that, that's, that across the planet before the fall, there was seems to be a general consensus of how you show it up you know, on the planet and how you would you know, interact with, with the world. And as you noted, then there's this, this decline. Well, I mean, I suppose we see it as a decline. I'm, I'm sure other people won't. Like we had a, a past guest just a, a week ago would, who would argue with us. They would say that, yeah. you know, now with everything we have and all this stuff and the materialism and the fact that you can see a doctor and stuff, it's a million times better than it ever was back then because life was still kind of harsh and mean. And, you know, it, it, but I don't see it that way. Actually, I mean, I think nah, I, I find just... it, it's fascinating that, like, as you noted, there is definitely a move towards what we're talking about minimalism, return Mm. to nature. Why is that? Well, I think part of the reason is, is that people have gone through the rinse cycle of materialism and all the things that it purported and promised that it was going to give us. And we're Mm. not any happier for it. And we just have to look at the statistics on mental health and so forth. It's at the, it's at the highest level it's ever been. And if things are so fantastic, why do people feel so broken? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good point. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that that you know that life has always been a struggle and that things are better than they ever were, it's just not true. It's it's a you know it's a completely it's a complete myth. You know, if you went back um, ten thousand years ago, the population of Europe, for example, would be tiny. It would be you know less than a hundred thousand probably. The population of the world about thirty thousand years ago was something like five million people in the whole world. So people did not have to struggle to survive. People had, you know, vast food resources available to them. They were living in forests mostly, with lots of fruit, uh, nuts, seeds, berries, vegetables. So they didn't have to struggle to survive. And you know, some anthropologists who've studied uh, indigenous simple hunter-gatherer groups, they found that they they only need to work for you know a few hours a day at the most, maybe yeah. four hours a day, and the rest of the time is leisure time. Exactly, and, and, and people had um, you know fairly good lifespans as well because there weren't many diseases around. A lot of diseases arrived when we we began to live with animals, when we domesticated animals. Um, so lifespans, people had a good diet. Uh, their lifespans were, were quite lengthy, and you know there was a lack of warfare, a lack of oppression, a lack of hierarchy. Women had equal status, so life was was you know it was, it was pretty good. <laughs> it was it was only really when uh, people began to farm uh, after the shortly after the fall that life began to be much harder so life became much much harder lifespans decreased to you know 30 40 years old diseases arrived people's lives were full of oppression warfare poverty and so on so is, I, I guess you could say that in the last century some people in the world who live in fairly affluent countries have begun to recapture some of the leisure and ease which which people had before the fall. Not many people, because a lot of people still have to work incredibly hard. You know, if you want to, if you want to earn a decent wage, a kind of survival wage here in the UK, you got to you know work 35, 40 hours a week. So it's not yeah. that's not an easy life, you know. And the and the thing is, I always chuckle at is that the things that people actually go to do when they do have time off on their you know on their holiday, <coughs> that that's the things that hunter gatherers got to do every single day. You know, going so back. Was... So you know, if you think about <laughs> oh, it, like, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, you think about like <clears throat> hunter gatherers. They would, you know, they would be hunting, fishing, going into nature, all the things that we actually pay for to go and do now, as, as far as our holiday. Yeah, even living in tents. You know, people people love to yeah. go camping. <laughs> yeah, maybe that reflects uh, an instinct, you know, to return or a deep desire to return to that way of life. Yeah, I think there is something to be said for that. I mean, even though, you know, it might be hard to quantify it in scientific terms, but even if we look at Wilson's kind of uh, theory on biophilia, you know, this kind mm -hmm. of innate on a DNA level, this need to want to always go back to nature. I think there are people that maybe would argue that, but they've been so indoctrinated into the concrete jungle. But if you speak to most people that have had any moment or time in nature, they will always say that that is some of them, their most profound and oftentimes their most spiritual experiences. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. That's true. And, and again, I think, you know, that's a, a burgeoning movement. I think more and more people are realizing the, the benefits of contact with nature. Mm. And I, I love the Japanese concept of forest bathing. Yep. When you bathe in the forest and, you know, feel a sense of, relaxation and connection to nature and um yeah i think you know a lot of people are, are discovering that and, and and going back to what you were saying before i think 
in the same way that people are realizing that materialism doesn't bring happiness, people are realizing that urban life doesn't bring happiness either. Mm. You know, the, you know, you, you can't gain happiness if you're stuck in a, a concrete jungle 24 hours a day for days on end. You have to step outside that and return to, to, to nature. And so maybe, maybe those two movements are in parallel. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, materialism is also a philosophy as well as a, a way of life. You know, materialism is the philosophy that all things are made of matter, that matter is the primary thing in the universe, and that human beings are just biological machines. Nature is just made up of biological machines. And that, and that and that view of nature, that view of the world, you know, is is pathological. It, it leads to ecological destruction. Eventually, it leads to our destruction too. So, in the same way that people are beginning to realize that materialism, materialism as a, a view of the world, you know, is kind of um, or doesn't work and and will lead to catastrophe. People are realizing that that materialism as a way of life doesn't work. You know. Buying things and owning things and accumulating possessions or money does not bring happiness. Mm. Now that's very true. So, Frank, do you want to kind of just let's be respectful of Steve's time? You want to kind of end off with maybe one more question? Yes. I, I, if sorry, if necessary, I could stay till about quarter past six. So, it's, yeah, no, it's that's two. good. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Okay. Well, yeah, I would be. So we've spoken about meditation and going out in nature, the various practices that we can do as individuals. I'd be really interested to hear your take on activism. What is your philosophy of going out into the world and pushing for change, whether it's climate or anything else? What kind of approach makes sense to you? Um. I'm a I'm a big proponent of activism. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's essential, but even more than that, it's you know it's it's an impulse that arises from from a feeling of um, you know of resistance towards you know um, resistance resistance towards um, negative um, you know egoic forces. So you know. It, I mean, I guess activism can sometimes become egoic in itself when people adopt right, rigid right. ideologies. That's the that's you know a problem that sometimes arises. Well, you know, it's the same with it's like what we were saying before about spirituality. It can be taken over by the ego. Activism can also be taken over by the ego when people cling to dogmatic ideologies and you know and oppose people who have different ideologies. But fundamentally, it's a you know it's a very positive influence um, instinct and. So, sorry. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that one moment in the in the activist uh, movement that was really influential for me, this uh, fellow named Peter Kalmus, who is part of um, Extinction Rebellion, scientist for Extinction Rebellion, he participated in a climate action, and they put up a poster behind him when he was getting arrested, and it said, we are nature defending itself. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just thunderstruck at that moment because he positioned himself not as an external actor, but as nature really uh, fighting back for her own welfare. And that really stuck with me. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. Yeah, I discuss it actually. In my, I've got a new book coming out called um, Dis, 
Disconnected, The Roots of Human Cruelty and How Connection Can Heal the World. And I, I discussed activism in the book. I discussed things like culture wars and, um, you know, um, activism generally. And I speak about it in terms of connection and disconnection. You know, there are people with disconnected minds who feel a sense of separation to nature and to other human beings. So you have what you, what I call the, the disconnected mindset, which represents the, the, the sort of the fallen psyche. They represent the human race's past with a sense of separation or disconnection to nature, uh, a sense of disconnection to other human beings, even a sense of disconnection to their own bodies. You know, they have a very individuated ego, which lives in duality and separation to the world. And they, and they, you know, they they live by the old fallen values of patriarchy, hierarchy, and so forth, aggression, and so forth. But you have this this movement towards connection, which I guess climate activists represent that movement. And so people with a, a connected mind, they do feel a sense of connection to nature and to other human beings. They feel a sense of empathy towards nature and a sense of responsibility to protect the environment. So they they represent the new, I guess you could call transfer values of of egalitarianism, uh, of peace, and so forth. So there, there is a kind of there's a conflict in the world at the moment between the the disconnected minds and the connected minds. You know, the, the disconnect sorry the disconnected minds represent the old traditional values, patriarchal values, but there is this relatively new movement of egalitarian connected people and so i think we see that that conflict playing out a lot at the moment in in our world yeah that's really that's really interesting so steve when is that book actually coming out it's coming out at the end of april or around the beginning of may oh cool we'll we'll be sure to get it that's 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 definite looking forward to it well steve we, we really appreciate your time sorry yeah about it's all kind of like a return to um, yeah. the topics i wrote about in the fall Cool. Well, we nice, we yeah nice. we we really appreciate your time and sorry about all the technical stuff, but uh, we got through it and uh, we will let you know when when this is out. Yeah, great to talk to you. Yeah, sorry about the uh, technical yeah, issues, but no yeah, problem. we still had a we still had a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I I would just really want to thank you for your books and your perspective because it's been really helpful for me personally, and I think for a lot of other people as well. So good stuff. Oh, thanks, Frank. That's great to hear. Thanks. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Brilliant. Steve. Brilliant. Okay, cheers. See you again. Cheers. Bye-bye. Right. Cheers. Right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Cool. So what did you think? Other than the technical issues we had? Other than the technical issues, great. You know, he's he's one of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I like I like his his perspective, you know, about between the disconnected and the connected and maybe once his new book comes out we can ask him to be back on because what i would like to ask him you know the questions i would ask is how is this going to work if you've got these two different ways of seeing the world right you've got the connected and the disconnected is right. there not going to be some kind of clash of clash and, then, yeah. and, and again i i guess like how do you is it possible i'd like to think it is but how do you fight that without spiraling back into the very things that caused the problem in the first place. If we talk about say violence and warfare, and we've seen yeah. that even, you know, you, I know you're, you know, a proponent of activism and you, you have a passion for that, which is, which I, I believe in too, but I tend to see that sometimes is that, you know, this kind of spills over activism spills over to violence. 
And it, and yeah. my kind of way of seeing it is in the one side, I get it. Like sometimes if you really want to make some change, you sometimes have to basically throw a punch, right? Um, but at the same time, you're kind of undermining what you're trying to achieve. So is this kind of catch-22 situation going on? Oh, yeah. And plus, everything's changing all the time because one strategy that's going to work today may not work tomorrow. And yeah. it's um, it's such an immense challenge. Um, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I mean, as I've been writing a lot more about this, too, and, and it has been a, an interest of mine for a very long time, but I've kind of rekindled that interest in going into it and, and bring it in, into my work is this idea of indigenous ways of knowing and being. And the reason why I find it so important is because not only has it been devalued and vilified, you know, this kind of, that, that's the primitive mindset, right? Yeah. But we tend to, a lot of times I see people tend to like uh, look at these other examples, but seem to dismiss this completely, the idea of indigenous ways of knowing and being. And I keep thinking to myself, well, if we're looking for an answer to the current problem, Maybe what we should do is we should go back, but we're not just going to go back. Maybe we should go back to a time when, as in, you know, Steve's thesis, the fall hadn't happened yet. And mm -hmm. these would be the, the people that would understand a different way of showing up in the world. And they still see it that way. Of course, they have been, you know, affected by colonialization. They've been affected by modernity. Of course, their life ways have changed dramatically because they've had to try to find a way to, to fit in, especially when things that they were able to do before have been taken away from them. But they, the way that they describe things are still very much in line with that. And those are stories that have been passed on for generations because mm -hmm. oftentimes these are oral traditions. And so I think there lies in something that could be a potential to resolving some of the situations, the dire situations we now find ourselves in. So I feel that needs, you know, that needs a lot more, um, it needs a lot more looking into than it has been up until this point. Right. And that's where I always go back to time spans, time scales, because people don't, get this they don't understand human history and if you don't understand human history you won't realize what's historically normal and you might be fooled into thinking that modern perspectives are everything but they're just a blip on the scale yeah so. exactly absolutely hi dr king here and thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to listen to myself and frank as we explore with our guests ways to return the human animal to wild health for more information on Frank, you can go to his website at exuberantanimal.com or visit humananimal.info to find out more about my coaching programs, read the blog, get your hands on some human animal gear, or explore our upcoming events. Until the next time, stay wild and free.